Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. You know, a lot of times on these Monday shows, as you may have noticed, I come on the air and I just want to talk. Um, And that's not a bad thing. But that's not the case today, um, partly because I didn't get very much sleep last night. And when I did sleep, I would have these dreams that I immediately wanted to wake up from. So I think uh, I'm a, maybe a little less lucid than usual today, but that's also not necessarily a bad thing. We're going to begin. Fortunately, we have very good guests who are going to help me along and cover for my deficits. And then at the end of the show, we are going to um, open up the phone lines and talk a little bit uh, among ourselves about what's happening happening at the border right now, about the separation of children from their families, uh, about whether or not that's us, as we like to say. Um, but uh, to begin, well, I should also say in the second segment, we're going to talk about uh, the disappearance of ice from Antarctica, which is a problem because that's mainly what Antarctica is. It's a problem for other reasons, too. Uh, but for starters, we're going to uh, talk to somebody we've talked to many times before, one of the first people I talked to after the 2016 election, um, because I think the press is – we've hit one of our little marker posts here or or some kind of threshold, and I think it's a hard thing to understand what the threshold is. And in my sleep-deprived state, I'm not especially good at analogies. The best thing that I could think of, the best way I could think of to talk about it was to say – Imagine that the press every single day covered essentially the same car crash, you know, I mean, in the same place, same kind of car crash, like over and over and over again. And and no matter what they did, basically, there was a similar kind of car crash the next day. Well, you'd sort of, if you're in the press, start thinking, maybe we're not covering the right thing here. We just keep covering this car crash. Um, and, you know, I mean, some of the details change and stuff like that. But there's clearly some kind of underlying problem or set of problems that we're not writing about. Um, and, and I think that's a little bit of how we feel right now, that there are things that are wrong that we in the press have attempted to document but somehow or other, we haven't documented them in the way that we meant to, or at least not in a way that leads us to a whole other set of conclusions or changes. Um, I don't see how we can be happy with the, with the aggregate of our efforts right now, um, although we may be very happy with certain specific uh, efforts uh, as we um, face this kind of civic crisis we're in. Anyway, Margaret Sullivan is uh, joining us. I said I didn't want to talk. Uh, media columnist for The Washington Post. She's been writing a a lot uh, about this kind of stuff, really since the election and before it, too, and also very specifically lately. So, Margaret Sullivan, welcome back to our show. Thank you very much, Colin. Good to be with you again. So uh, one of the things that you've written about, and, and so George Lakoff, who's been on our show a couple of times, uh, uh, has been talking a lot about how he, he's not a member of the press, he's more of a kind of neuroscientist, neurolinguistics kind of guy. He's been watching the press and he sort of feels like we're not telling the story, we're telling the story of the storytellers, right? We're, we're, you know, we're pouring over things that the president says and things that his spokespeople say and stuff like that, rather than starting first with the story, which sounds like something that I've read coming from you, too. Yeah, you know, what Lakoff says, and I think he's absolutely right, is that we're, we're failing
willing to get at the truth on a on a consistent basis that you know this is an administration and a president who spews falsehoods a lot and by continuing to sort of report on them we amplify those falsehoods and Lakoff's point is that that's how propaganda works by repetition so for example when um, when Trump and others referred to Hillary Clinton as a crook, and, you know, Trump had his expression, crooked Hillary, it, it sank in with people over time that even if she wasn't going to jail or being, being prosecuted, she must be a crook. And so, uh, y- you know, it's the repetition that worries him, and, and he thinks that that gets in the way of real truth-telling, which is, after all, what journalism tries to do. Let's hear uh, Mr. Lakoff himself uh, talking to Brian Stelter on reliable sources. So when the president said on Wednesday that CNN and NBC, among other networks, are the greatest uh, enemy, the biggest enemy of America, my denial on television when I said, this is disgusting, I was part of the problem. That's right. You're part of the problem. And the only way around it is the following. To state the truth first to see what truth he's trying to hide. The media are crucial to our freedoms. The media, right now, uh, people in the media are doing great work, probably the best work I've ever seen in uncovering truths. But what's happened is they allow Trump to manipulate them. So if you start with the truth that he's trying to hide, you make clear to that, and then you point out that the president is trying to hide this by lying, you might, in a very, in a few sentences, in a few words, uh, or in a few seconds, say a little bit about what the lie is and go back to the truth. That's what's effective, getting the truth out there. So, Morgan Sullivan, uh, you know, just if we use uh, that idea, I, one of the situations that, that seemed relevant to me as I think about it is we tend to join stories in progress and they become stories in progress when Trump joins them. And that's part of our mistake, right? So he goes over and makes nice with Kim Jong-un. And then at that point, we in the press say, well, Kim Jong-un is a monster and he runs these you know horrible uh, labor camps and, and where people are beaten and starved and mistreated. And he, you know he's a monster. See, and we've started to tell the story only when Trump joined the story. And as I I'm reading your work and I'm listening to Lakoff and some of the other people. I'm thinking we should keep Trump out of some of these stories for a while, right? Just tell the story of North Korea. Forget about the Trump part of it. That comes later. Yeah, the problem is that what you're saying and to some extent what Lakoff is saying, it runs against the, the conventions of news, you know, which is to join a story when something big is happening um, or, you know, when, for example, when the president says something that's, you know, startling, we report that. That's news. That's the way news works. And so um, it really, what, what he's proposing, and I think it's worth thinking about, um, is that, you know, we really have to have a radically different approach so that we're not um, feeding this uh, the, this kind of constant drumbeat of falsehoods and false impressions that that do convince people um, of the wrong things, I think, over time. Right. So last week, um, uh, President Trump made what he called an unannounced visit. He called that at the time that he announced it uh, to the press area down to where Fox News was uh, outside the White House. And he gave this, you know, not that unusual 
an interview or in fielded questions in a way that we're very accustomed to, but where even for him in a startling way, there was this this kind of long list of lies and distortions. And the press immediately felt, as you say, because this is standard operating procedure, uh, the press felt as though they should report all those things and then explain why those things were not the case. But how do we break out of that cycle? Well, you know, Lakoff's uh, construction is, and I'm not sure if this, if he coined this, or it may actually have been Brian Stelter, whose uh, whose podcast we were just listening mm-hmm. to a piece of. But the idea of a truth sandwich, in other words, you 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 come at something, whether it's a broadcast or an article or whatever it may be, with the truth, the big picture truth, contextualized first, and then you know you get at what Trump is saying about it. And then you may want to fact-check that and, you know, get back to the truth. So as a result, you don't have headlines that are amplifying these wrong things. But that is very, that is a radical notion in the world of news. And I don't know that there's any appetite for it. I mean, we continue to do what we do, and it would take, I I don't know what, uh, something, some kind of really uh, radical approach and radical leadership to change that. And I don't actually see it happening, but I see the virtues of it. Right. Uh, I mean, I think it can happen on a relatively small scale. I think, for example, as you look at what's happening at the border right now, there are people who are just doing pieces saying, this is what's happening at the border right now. These are the kinds of facilities that the people are being put in. This is what's happening to families. And you can write all of those things without saying the word Trump. And maybe the word Trump is in some accompanying companion story to it. Mm -hmm. But it's like you in the Lakoff Stelter, and I would say Margaret Sullivan model, you tell that story without having to tell the political side of it at first. Right. But if you look at any, uh, any news organization's homepage right now, um, it would be very hard to get away from the fact that this is, you know, and, it, and reasonably so. It is a Trump administration um, policy to do this. And so while you can tell the story of the children being held in these, in these inhumane um, cages, really, um, you know, taken away from their parents. Yes, you can tell that story, but you're also probably going to have a story that says Trump insists this was a law that was on the books because of the Democrats. And, and so you're, you might be doing some of each there. You know, it's not as if there's just one piece uh, of news about this. There are many, many, and it, and it, it seems uh, unrealistic that it's going to be told without, you know, and here's what he tweeted about that and all of that. And, you know, Trump's tweets are another big part of this, is that we tend to overreact, I think. Yes, they are, in a sense, presidential statements, but we tend to overreact to them and make whole stories about, about tweets, which are unfiltered ways of the president, you know, getting across what are often falsehoods, lies. Right. And I would add to that some of his off the cuff comments, which I I think he thinks are funny. Um, The most recent of those was, I think, at that particular uh, moment on Friday where he was spewing all this other stuff. And he's talking about Kim Jong Un and he says something like, you know, when he talks, his people stand up and take notice. I want my people to do that about me. I, I didn't interpret that as a serious remark. It's it's an alarming remark anyway, if you really understand who Kim Jong is you know I mean you know Hitler no, compared, I agree you know, go ahead. with you that that he's sometimes kind of being jocular, 
But a lot of the times, the things that he's being jocular about, I mean, in this case, he has already said what a talented and, and you know, loving and, and well-loved leader uh, Kim is. And, and, you know, if you know the truth about what's happened in North Korea and the, and the human rights offenses there, you know, whether he's kidding or not, it's still, it's still you know, very offensive. Oh, it's totally offensive. Not only that, but we're not his people. He's our employee, and he's, he's failed to grasp that. And sometimes I think maybe you can answer some of what he says, some of the ridiculous things that he says with a little bit of your own humor. But but I also do think in some ways he gets us into that conversation. So I want to ask you about another thing that I, I know you've been intrigued by, and that's an argument that's been made by, uh, among other things, among other people, a writer named Dan Gilmore, you said it on Medium, who says, look, when people tell lies, if they habitually tell lies, whoever they are, whether they're Kellyanne Conway or the president, president himself, at a certain point, you just stop putting those things on the air because they, they have no value. They are, they are associated with a, a pattern of nearly constant not telling the truth. Once again, kind of a tall order, though. It, it's a tall order because we want to know what the White House and the Trump administration are saying. We, you know, we do. There's a news, a legitimate news reason for that. But to give someone like Kellyanne Conway or whoever it may be um, you know, unfiltered, long periods of, you know, serious contemplation on these shows is has to stop. Um, I mean, they're getting up there, and we know from the past that they're lying. Gilmore says, you know, zero tolerance. Once somebody tells a falsehood or what we believe to be a lie on television, that's it. Um, you know, that that's, that's extreme, but I do think with people... Um, like Kellyanne Conway, who we know, you know, uses these occasions to spin out what she would call alternative facts, um, that is absolutely wrong, and it shouldn't be allowed. And, and you know, it's the conventions, again, of cable news where they need to fill time. You know, it's, it's 24-7, and so, you know, having Kellyanne Conway on there, I guess, it helps with that, but it really does damage at the same time. I want to play another clip to you. This is uh, Seymour Hirsch uh, talking to Brooke Gladstone and, uh, on uh, the media uh, about how he sees some of these questions that we're talking about right now. He's controlling the agenda totally, totally. He attacks now and the FBI is out to get me. Whatever it is, it just doesn't end the coverage. I look at the cable news and I just think, oh, have we really come to this? That if I'm in the New York Times, I get a tip on a story, a tip becomes a story, and then I put it online for the Times, and then I go on, you know, MSNBC that night to talk about it. I can't relate to what's going on. A lot of tips and a lot of secondhand stuff is being run as serious stories, even in the good newspapers. And that's the meaning. So, Margaret Sullivan, uh, I think one of the first columns that you wrote right after the election, the first column you wrote after the election, was basically, do your job. If you're a journalist, do your job. Do your job the way you always did your job. Um, this is Hirsch is raising the question of whether or not we've kind of been dragged into a kind of sloppiness that's sort of collectively the, the product of the Trump administration and the digital news environment anyway also, which kind of asks us to reprocess our work all the time. I don't agree with Hirsch uh, that the, the the quality news outlets are publishing rumors and then and then going on to talk about them on, on MSNBC. I, I mean that there. I don't know what he's talking about there. Um, 
you know, there are stories that have been in the Washington Post, the New York Times, Politico, and elsewhere that are based on anonymous sources, but they're not made-up rumors. Um, and if they were, uh, you know, we would know it and would have had to recant. So, I, you know, I, I think he's off base there, but there is a there is a, a, an element of truth in what he says, which is that, you know, there's this kind of constant recycling, which is part of the news ecosystem right now um, of, of, you know, a story in the paper and that turns into, you know, whatever it is on, on cable television. I, I don't know that that's particularly bad. I, I think when I see the Washington Post people or the Times people on cable you know, for the most part, they're well-informed and very good reporters, and they're bringing something to the table that's worth having. There's another piece of that, though, and it's in Stelter's uh, comment uh, that we heard earlier. It's there, and it's in uh, some of your recent writing, too, which is, you know, President Trump is also at war with the press. Um, and on the one hand, he needs the press. He's a creature of the media. He almost doesn't exist without the media. On the other hand, to whatever extent it's possible to separate the notion of journalism and journalists from the media, he has a real problem with journalists. And he, he, he will do anything to discredit journalists, and anytime journalists do get anything wrong or or be if you're sloppy about anything obviously that provides him with more ammunition and it does seem as though although you documented the fact that you, know, you go back to the Obama administration there were some uh, things done to and about reporters that didn't seem terribly in line with the first amendment but you know it feels as though this is the other thing we should be bracing ourselves for this hasn't happened as much as I thought it would happen in the first two years of the Trump administration but at some point he's going to go after the press well, that has actually, you mean, it, it, not just in words, but right. in deeds. He's going to use and, the apparatus you know, of government. We saw the yeah. beginning of that just, uh, I guess, <laughs> you know, it's funny to think it was just last week because it really does, in this strange world we're in, it feels like it was a month ago, but um, in which the Justice Department is is going after a New York Times reporter. Um, it's the first time in the Trump administration, and I agree with you, it, it was only a matter of time. Um, you could see it coming, and it happened far too often in the Obama administration, too, which, you know, President Obama said he would be a press-friendly and transparent president and turned out not to be. But this is, a, you know, I think what Trump's attitude is toward the press is of a completely different nature. Um, you, you didn't hear Obama talking about the press as the enemy of the people, and I think that he had great respect for the Constitution. Um, though I don't appreciate and or approve of the way he he went after journalists, which eventually, by the end of the Obama administration, they had started to you know change that. So that was good. But no, I think that we're going to see more of it. It was only a matter of time, and uh, it's dangerous. Right. I, I during the campaign said several several times on the air. If you watch this man and you cannot imagine him wanting to lock up journalists at some point, I mean, he's he's such an admirer of the way that Putin runs his country and says that, you know, Putin's got things running nice and smoothly there. Well, that's one of the ways Putin does that, obviously, is he criminalizes right. dissent and, right. and locks yeah. people up. So, uh, Margaret Sullivan, I don't want to uh, monopolize your time here, but I will ask you about uh, just one last story here, which is that the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette uh, fired an award-winning cartoonist uh, after 25 years with the paper, Rob Rogers. I mean, I don't know. You and I have been in the journalism business a long time. I was in the newspaper business a long time. This isn't the first time something like this has happened. Is it something other than just a publisher getting sick of this particular cartoonist? Is it a symptom of a larger disease? This is 
an unusual thing. I, I don't know of, you know, political cartoonists uh, being fired because of their, you know, their, their work. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you, when you appoint a political cartoonist, you're saying to that person, you know, we're going to let, we're going to give you a free uh, hand to a large extent. And it's possible that you might kill uh, a cartoon now and then that crosses the line. But to actually fire uh, a political cartoonist is, you know, it, yes, he has the right to do it because he's the employer. But um, this is really coming from a political perspective. This was this cartoonist was doing pieces that were cartoons that were critical of Trump. We know that the owner of the Pittsburgh Post Gazette is is a very pro-Trump person. Has supported him in editorials and in other ways. And this is, you know, clearly a political act, and it's not about anything else other than that. And it's very, very disheartening to see. It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's really wrong. I think. Right. I mean, we've all always known that power resides in ownership of the press, that those of us who put our opinions out there in the form of cartoons or analysis or columns or stories or whatever, you know, we, we operate within the biggest sphere of freedom that we can we can expand on our own for ourselves and, and kind of try to, you know, keep that sphere pretty broad. But ultimately, people who and companies who own media companies have a lot of power. And so we see this now with Sinclair and its TV stations, you know, making people sort of parrot these these truisms and and, yeah. and and the more ownership changes and goes in that direction, I assume you see more of that. You will, and you know I think there's less um, concern about you know if you don't if you don't like my an owner like this saying essentially you know if you push too hard or even hard at all against my political beliefs, you're gone. And he can do that. He's the owner. You know that's not protected by the First Amendment. But um, if we expect the press to have uh, an independence that inspires um, what it should in a democracy, you, you, you can't do that. Right. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So it's, it's, very, it's very tough to see, and, and it's, you know, in my mind, it's, it's appalling. Well, let's keep our eyes on the so-called civil project or opening the Colorado Sun. I think today this is going to be a, a new movement in so-called decentralized media ownership. Maybe the next time we talk, Margaret, we'll be talking about that. By then, I will have figured out what civil is all about with their blockchain. <laughs> uh, you know, their blockchain funding. Um, I, I wish them well uh, because we need them, but uh, but tough to understand. I agree. I agree, Margaret Sullivan. So great to talk to you. Thank you, Colin. All right. We're going to take a break right now. We're going to come back. I wish I had something happy to t- tell you was coming up, but it's it's going to get worse. Uh, it's Antarctica, and the news is not good. It's a crazy world. Lord knows it's a crazy world. Thank you for listening today. I want to say that in in the third and final segment of today's show, I'm going to not have a guest, and and we're going to talk about the images coming at us and the news coming at us uh, from the border. Uh, I know this is sort of a moral and ethical low-hanging fruit. I mean, we see these horrifying scenes of children wrenched away from their parents, children with really no one to attend to them, uh, people placed in what amount to cages inside buildings. Um, It takes almost no effort whatsoever to locate one's moral compass about something like that. Uh, I'm wondering if there's something else that we can say, uh, and I'm not even sure uh, 
that I have the 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 decisive or incisive insight about that. But I'm hoping that maybe you will. Maybe there's a little bit more that we can say. Maybe this is the time where, because it's such low-hanging fruit, we gather ourselves together to address um, how far from our ideals we seem to have strayed at this moment. All right. Well, um, I wish I had good news about this particular part of the show, but I don't. Uh, Andrew Shepard is a professor of Earth Observation at the University of Leeds. Uh, he's the lead author of a study examining mass balance of the Antarctic ice sheet, uh, published last week in the journal Nature. And not only, I mean, you you already knew that the news was not going to be good about that, but maybe uh, what you didn't know is how bad or alarming that news is. So, uh, Professor Andrew Shepard, thank you. Oh, I haven't even clicked him in yet. That's a good point, Wolfie. Uh, I told you I didn't get much sleep last night. Uh, Professor Andrew Shepard, thank you for joining uh, our show today. Hi, good morning, or is it afternoon with you guys? I'm not sure. It's afternoon, but we're not fussy about distinctions like that. Um, Okay, good afternoon. Yeah, why worry about what time it is at a time like this? Um, So, I mean, maybe the first thing to say is to to establish what Antarctica is. I mean, we know it's a continent, but it's really the location of, what, most of the fresh water on Earth? Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's That's true. Um, 99% of the fresh water on Earth is uh, trapped within the Antarctic ice sheet. So it, it does make a difference what happens to it. And so there have been different estimates about what's happening to it. Everybody, I think, well, almost everybody would agree uh, that it's melting, that it's diminishing. What did you learn about this that's new? So that's actually, um, for some time, we've not really um, had the evidence to say that that's the case. So we've seen one or two small studies that have indicated that Antarctica might start to be responding to environmental change. But... Um, there hasn't been a wholesale assessment of the ice losses, which has confirmed that until um, what we published earlier um, well, last week now, um, which was the synthesis of all of the different measurements from satellites that we collected since the early 1990s. And unfortunately, as you um, suggested at the start of the piece, uh, the news isn't great. Um, it, we found that the ice is losing three times as much ice today as it was the last time we looked at it, which is not great because that was more than five years ago now. And so there's been quite a significant hike up in in the um, sea level contribution. One of the things you were able to look at, as I understand, so East Antarctica is often, particularly among climate change deniers uh, or people who are denying the effects of climate change, uh, they will make claims about East Antarctica uh, and, and, and say basically that the, the amount of ice there has risen or fallen, risen and fallen, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm not sure how much hard data they ever had about this, but you do have some strong data about that now. We do, um, and uh, I think that it's 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 a fair comment to talk about East Antarctica because it contains most of Antarctica's ice. So Antarctica contains 99% of the freshwater reserve of the planet, uh, and East Antarctica contains about 90% of that or, or, or more. And so um, it, it's a fair comment. Um, some people, you'll hear that the ice sheet as a whole has got enough ice to raise sea levels by 58 metres, and more than 50 metres of that is in East Antarctica. So questions about what's happening there are relevant. Um, what we've found, and we do include um, a study which had previously reported that East Antarctica was growing in our assessment, we find over 25 years no significant change in the ice uh, content of East Antarctica. We don't see in, in any of the satellite data any evidence that glaciers have been activated in a big way, uh, and we don't see any evidence that, that it's growing either. And so 
I think we'll put that one to one side in terms of sea level rise. All, all of the um, changes are happening elsewhere in West Antarctica and at the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, when we talk about uh, Antarctica and about the ice uh, melting at three times the rate uh, it was uh, back in 2007, this is going to turn show up mostly in a rise in sea levels, right? Is there another way that it shows up, or is that the, the most important way to think about it? That's the, the impact, but that's definitely not the way we measure it. So mm. we measure it um, locally in Antarctica. So we measure the changes that are happening to the ice sheet. Um, we use three different satellite uh, techniques. One measures the shape of the ice, so it changes over time, it grows or shrinks. Another one measures the speed of the glaciers and whether they're speeding up or slowing down because they pour ice into the oceans. And then another technique, uh, the gravity changes, Earth's gravity. It was designed to look at Earth's gravity, but actually um, changes in the ice loading in the uh, southern hemisphere around Antarctica do affect the gravity that those satellites sense. And so... We have different ways of looking at the picture, and all three of them point to the same thing, that the um, the ice is being lost um, and being lost at an increasing rate. Um, some people hearing that might say, well, so what? So, so we have a six-inch rise in sea level by 2100. Well, what does that mean? Six inches doesn't seem like that much to me. What's the answer to that? Well, the answer is that, first of all, um, I guess those people would be um, coastal planners, because if you were a coastal planner, and it's not, it's not yet. So a lot of people in U.S. cities have basements with maybe cars in there, or maybe they've even got a games room down there, or maybe their kitchens down there, or whatever. These basements will get flooded at some point if um, storm floods happen more frequently. And and while you or I and the owners of those basements might not um, want to be uh, acting about it, we trust. Our, our governments, the local governments, the city government uh, or the, the state government to, to make sure that those flood defences are in place. If you ask people who work in those departments, then they will take um, an extra 20 centimetres of sea level rise seriously because right now it's not going to be in their budgets. And, and the concern is is that um, uh, people need to be aware um, that that might now realistically be a case because the last time... Uh, the Intergovernmental on Climate Change made a recommendation. It was based upon the notion that Antarctica wouldn't respond uh, rapidly to climate change, but actually we see now that it is. All right. Well, alarming news uh, and, and news that uh, I think uh, we'll, we're going to want to follow uh, as time goes by. We've been talking to Andrew Shepard, professor of uh, Earth Observation at the University of Leeds. He's the lead author of a study examining mass balance of the Antarctic ice sheet uh, published last week in the journal Nature. I'll tell you what we're going to do now. All right. And I'm allotting a little extra time for this. Um, I'm going to do something that we've been doing a lot on Mondays recently, sometimes for whole shows. Uh, but uh, we're going to have a longish final segment. And, and I, I think you're all reading the same stories and seeing the same images that, that I am about what's happening at the border uh, and the policy of separating children from families. And uh, maybe we can talk about this and follow some of the ideas of George Lakoff. It is very hard to talk about this story without putting Donald Trump into it. But in some ways, talking about the story itself, about what it is that we see happening there, why we think it's happening, uh, and what we think we can do about it. And also, I guess to me, the biggest question is, I'm going to give out the phone number in just a second, and then we're going to go to a break. To me, the biggest question is, 
how do we square what our government does uh, with who we are? You know, I mean, for the most part, for most of my life, I'm 63 years old. You know, there's been lots of times where I've looked at things that the United States was doing under all kinds of different president, presidencies and, and, and congressional leaderships and been really troubled by it. I mean, you look at some of our, uh, our activities in South and Central America uh, during the 1980s, and it's, you know, it's not something that you can feel proud of or comfortable with. And, and we have intervened in the polity of, of other countries. We've done all kinds of things. Um, and we're a huge consumer of the world's resources. We are not unrelated to the problem you just heard Andrew Shepard describe. There's something about this, something about the intimacy and personalness uh, of what we're seeing here that just seems like a way our soul, our collective soul might be drifting away from us in a way that also might make it very difficult to reel in. One of the things that I keep asking myself about during this period of our history is how much of our real selves, if there ever was any American real self, how much of that can we get back when this is over? Anyway, I welcome your comments, however it is that you want to talk about this, I know this has been a depressing show, so take a look at this adorable kitten gif. Wait, you can't see gifs. Just take my word for it. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish doesn't like ice anyway. Our intern is Zandra Ellen. The part of Bill Curry was played by Lindsey Graham. On tomorrow's show, 2,000 years of refugees. And now, back to Colin. All right. So we're going to take some phone calls here. Uh, Chris from East Hampton is all ready to go. Uh, let me just say once again what the phone number is. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. I mean, it's, it's as I tried to say before, there's no such thing as a time in which one's government is in total communion with one's own soul, right? I mean, there just isn't. And certainly during the Bush administration, I started to become very troubled uh, about not that we'd ever never been in the torture business, but publicly and enthusiastically being in the torture business and holding people in cells um, with no charges. Um, uh, All of those responses really began to disturb and upset me. There were so many ways towards the end of the Bush administration where I, th- I was really saying, I want my country back. I want the country that I remember, the imperfect but striving for good company, country. And I really felt as though uh, the Bush administration, and probably it was the Dick Cheney administration in a lot of ways, had, had strayed just so far from that. In, and then you look at Obama, and, and it is, you know, it's interesting how Margaret was saying, uh, uh, talking, Margaret Sullivan before was talking about the way in which the Obama administration often really went after the press uh, in a way that really almost nobody had ever done before, particularly early on in the Eric Holder period. I mean, there just was like a raft of, usually in the name of stopping leaks, 
um, prosecutions of the press. Uh, and uh, then you look at other aspects of Obama, the fact that the extrajudicial um, executions went up. Um, the drone strike, stuff like that. Uh, the fact that his border policy was m- far more punitive and deportation oriented than I think anyone that had preceded. I think he deported uh, more president, more uh, uh, immigrants, more illegal uh, or people coming illegally this, to this country than maybe all the other presidents <laughs> combined. It was always some really disturbing statistic. And I used to think about M- M- Obama. He's like Macbeth or something. He's like. He's not the person that he thought he was going to be, uh, and either that or he always was a different person that we as, that assumed he was. He's a constitutional scholar. He's involved in all this unconstitutional stuff. You know, never was really able to get Gitmo closed. All this kind of stuff. But now here, this is pretty much the presidency that we expected, and I think some of the images from this particular moment will be part of how this presidency is permanently defined and understood. Uh, who knows? I, there may be more dramatic things to come. I kind of hope not. Um, but uh, so I just want to hear from you. I want to hear uh, how you're feeling about that. Uh, whether you think eh, this is just sort of part of the uh, part of the way governments have to act at times, and all American governments uh, have at some point acted ruthlessly, or whether this seems somehow different. We'll start with uh, Chris in East Hampton. Hi, Chris. You're on the air. Uh, hi, thanks for taking my call. I think it's very interesting that uh, Margaret Sullivan was brought on to talk about uh, uh, untruths making their way into the press. Uh, my position is it's certainly not just from politicians and other people who uh, uh, use information to manipulate public uh, opinion, but of course the press themselves is currently on a campaign doing that with these border children uh, as an issue, suggesting that this is a choice when uh, not presenting the facts in their entirety, I find lies in a, uh, uh, through omission are the primary means by which people are deceived. Uh, certainly it's more important than ever to read beyond the headlines. If you were to read the headlines today, you would think that uh, Donald Trump personally and cruelly has decided to separate these children from their parents when there's some alternative. Uh, and there is an alternative. The only alternative is to release them, is to release people who show up at the border with children on the basis that you either have to separate them by court order while they're under detention. That wasn't a Trump policy. That was ordered by a court when a left-wing group went to court to fight the policy of detaining them together. So this certainly didn't start under this administration, and, and the administration is in a position now where either they release anyone who shows up at the border with children or they detain them separately. And you don't see that stark choice that the government is facing, that the American people are facing, uh, 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 being made clear or even mentioned. No, well, the, well the, first of all, I think there's a little bit of distortion that you're engaging in, too. So uh, you've probably read some of the same articles that I have. The two previous administrations did struggle with this question. What do you do about it? One of the many things that you can do and what the Obama administration eventually wound up doing after struggling with this is treating this as an administrative as, as opposed to criminal problem. In other words, keeping some of these families in administrative detention, easier to turn them around, get them back uh, out of the country. I mean, Obama very focused on deportation, but you can do that without separate, separating families. I mean, this is... Uh, no, 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 you can't. No, no, Colin, you're at, you're, that's a misrepresentation. The families that are being, the, the children that are being detained separately now, and I would hardly call those inhuman conditions. Frankly, it's far more inhuman to hand your child off to a cartel-linked human smuggler, which has been uh, happening en masse with uh, 
with this chaos that we're experiencing at the southern border. The families that are being separated now are not arriving at, at, at border stations. They're being apprehended at the border, crossing illegally, and they're being separated while the parents are being prosecuted. The alternative to that is not to prosecute the parents for entering the country illegally, which I suspect a lot on the left would like. I mean, there is a definite impulse towards uncontrolled, open-border mass immigration. It benefits the left. That's what this entire campaign is intended to, to facilitate. Turn them around and send them back. What, what, what is the point? I agree. I agree. Okay. Turn them around. I, I agree completely. Turn them around and say, how about this? I, I suspect that a lot of them won't come now. So, so after this, after seeing that they can't simply waltz in as they could under the previous policy, hopefully that'll stop people from making these dangerous trips. Hopefully it'll really stop those who are putting their kids in the hands of human smugglers that they're giving thousands of dollars to to have them shipped across the U.S. border illegally and putting their own children at tremendous risk. I mean, imagine uh, imagine how much trouble they're in. Imagine how scary things are in places like Honduras that they're willing. I mean, I don't know what percentage of people are actually doing that kind of thing, and I don't think you do and either. Everyone from South and Central America should have the right to emigrate here. And, and uh, if, that's the, if, that's, if that's the view, then I say let's just get it out in the open. Let's, let's talk, talk about that as a policy. But, of course, uh, I think that, that it's understood that most Americans probably would not go along with having an unlimited, unfettered immigration policy based on anyone who's living a life that's more dangerous or, or, or poverty stricken anywhere in the world has, has the right to come here. We cannot. Okay, Chris, I, I'm going to, I'm just, Chris, I'm going to cut you off just because I want to get other callers on and you kind of tend okay. to run off at the well, mouth. I, I will say you and Kirsten Nielsen, our de- uh, Department of Homeland Security, you guys should get your story straight because she says we don't have a policy of separating families. You say we do and we should. So I don't know. Have lunch with Kirsten and get her to talk about that. Uh, all right, let's go uh, along here. Uh, more phone calls here. I want to get women on the air as well as men. I see an Elena on the board. Uh, Elena from Mystic, you're up next. Uh, hi, Colin. I'm a very long listener, and I really enjoy your show. Um, and I really think this is an important topic um, for a whole host of reasons. One, I'm a mother to an 8-year-old son, and I can't imagine if I were leaving a country to escape violence or political oppression that to be um, arriving at, you know, supposedly one of the countries that says, give us your tired, your poor, the wretched refuse of your teeming shores, and that to have him taken away would be horrible. Um, The second point I'd like to make is that um, when my husband and I were watching coverage of this last night on both uh, American News and also uh, the BBC, my husband, who is much more conservative than I, looked and said, this reminds me of concentration camps where children were separated and parents were separated and there was no connection. So I think this is an absolutely abhorrent policy. I don't know what in the world that this country is standing for at the moment. Um, my, I can speak personally. My grandparents came over as uh, immigrants and they worked hard and I'm sure these folks are willing to do this work hard and do the jobs that a lot of people don't want to do. Um, but to separate children from their parents is just heartbreaking. And I think the analogy that my husband made last night was really spot on. So thank you for letting me make that comment. All right. Thanks. And I just, just to go back to Chris's comment for a second, I mean, really, you know, he's basically, I think, 
spouting the president's line right now, right? The president says, you've got it. They, you, they have to do this because of some law that has existed for a long time, except that, I mean, other administrations were able to steer around. There isn't any law, first of all. There's no law that says that that has to happen. Chris is wrong. The president is uh, not only wrong, but probably lying. His own Department of Homeland Security says they don't have a policy of doing that. They, they don't have a, they're doing it, but they don't have a policy of doing it. I mean, depending on who you listen to from this administration, you're going to get different stories. But I mean, Lindsey Graham, a, a Republican senator, said on the air the other day, look, he could pick up a phone and make this stop. Yeah, the president could pick up a phone uh, and call DHS and make this stop. It, it is simply not the case that it has to happen. Chris from East Hampton, I don't know whether it was Long Island or Connecticut, but he's wrong. Um, all right, let's go back to the phones here and let's talk to uh, David in Woodbury. Hi, David, you're on the air. Oh, hello, Colin. Goodness, one of the outrages, Maria Teresa Kumar reported last night in MSNBC that in Cornutus, Texas, 50 miles east of El Paso, they are uh, in the process of erecting tent cities in the 100-degree heat to house people. This, this whole situation is cruel and inhumane and is so unconstitutional, if not illegal, if not uh, perhaps impeachable. Right. Well, um, I can't disagree. Well, I don't know about the. I mean, let's let's talk about the impeachment thing some other day. Um, that's it, look. It's a disgusting, inhumane policy. Uh, it's a, a policy which is as punitive as it possibly can uh, be. And and by the way, it's you know back to I keep coming back to Chris's call. It's also a policy that makes no discrimination, no discernment, as I, as far as I can tell. Although Chris said otherwise between people who are coming here legally seeking asylum using the regular channels and people who are being apprehended. It seems like everybody's being treated the same way uh, and, and under the stiffest, most criminalizing, punitive standards possible. Um, you know, in a way, though, I feel like we're, I don't know, I'm, we're going to run out of time pretty soon anyway. I feel like we're, we're almost missing what I would hope that we could get to, which is, okay, notwithstanding one or two people like Chris, this is, for the most part, something that we can all behold and say we can see it happening. It's happening before our eyes. We're seeing the pictures. We're reading the stories. We know it's happening. Um, how ultimately do we respond to it? And how far away from our basic ideals do we have to get uh, before we can't get back to where we used to be? You know, there's a way in which if you erode something and you erode it enough, erode an abstraction like justice or mercy, uh, you can't just, you know, buy a whole bunch of sand and fill in that hole uh, on, in, some, in some future day. It's really, really hard to restore it and to be better, um, to, be, to go back to being better, having been worse. It just seems like that's not the tide of human events. All right, let's go to Mary Jane in North somewhere. Hi, Mary Jane, you're on the air. Oh, hello, uh, Colin. I just wish that people will have a little sympathy for all the children that were blown up and killed in the two wars in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan. Mrs. Bush is worried about these children in an air-conditioned tent. What about all these other children who are victims of war? That's all I would like people to think about. But that's sort of what aboutism, isn't it? I mean, in other words, we, we can't pay attention to one specific injustice because we can think of other injustices that may have been worse. I mean, this is clearly wrong. You're right that we could look back at just the incredible carnage visited on the Middle East by some very benighted policies uh, and, 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 and be troubled by it. But like, that's what aboutism still. Why can't we behold the thing that's before us? 
And, and it's it's remediable, too. I mean, as Lindsey Graham said, Bush could I'm Bush. Trump could pick up the phone right now uh, and change this policy. Uh, it would be a relatively easy thing to do. My guess is DHS is dying for someone to tell them to stop doing this. They don't want to be known uh, as these kinds of people. Uh, it's, it's something that's more easily fixable than our benighted wars uh, and, and bad decisions in the Middle East. You can fix it right now. Uh, so why not? All right. Here's the Sarah. Maybe the last phone call of the day. We'll see. Hi, Sarah. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. How are you? Good. All right. So I wanted to give sort of a um, like a, a woman's perspective. I think that when we got down to our borders, Trump had talked about the caravan. Oh, my God, they're coming and they're gang members and they're raping our women. And we found it was it was women and it was children. And they were mainly fleeing a uh, a pretty misogynistic culture where Gang members can come in and take what they want. Your husband can do what, whatever he wants. And, um, you know, I, I think that the hardline Fox News viewer says, well, that's not our problem. Mm-hmm. They need to change the government, clean up your government, you know, become capitalistic like we are. We're a great country. We're so great. They can't even change their own life. They, they you know, to, to me, it was just so heartbreaking that when we saw the people coming in, nobody opened up their eyes and said, oh, my God, like these are babies and beat-up women. The fact that we are so hard and say, well, they can change it, they can bootstrap it, it just it makes me really sick. Well, also, also, well, thank you for your call, Sarah. Also, when you look at some of the things, some of the policies of ours, which resulted in the way that things are in, in that Central American triangle, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, where people are fleeing now, we are not blameless uh, in in the way things have shaped up there too, many of our policies have contributed uh, to the violence and terror that causes people to take these incredible risks to come here. So we can do better. We can be better. Uh, but you guys are pretty good. So thanks. I wasn't at my best today. I really I don't do well with you know one hour of sleep or whatever it was. But uh, you guys, uh, you pulled me up and you kept me going. Thanks for doing that. Thanks to Margaret Sullivan and Andrew Shepard and Betsy Kaplan and uh, Kion Wolf.